0: For the week of January 7th, 2016, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In our first conversation of the year, the gang asks, should we be optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Brad Plumer of Vox joins us to help answer. Then the Consumer Electronics Show is starting to become an auto show. We'll summarize the latest on connected cars, and then we'll turn our focus to Nevada, where things are getting pretty messy for solar. Regulators killed net metering there in December. Solar companies are laying off workers, and the governor is caught in the middle. I'm Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C. Catherine Hamilton and Jiggershaw join me, as always, to discuss. Catherine's with 38 North Solutions, also in Washington. She's coming to us from her new digs. You just moved there this week, right?
1: Yeah, we're in 1776, which is the incubator uh in Northwest DC on 15th Street and it's it's really cool. Great you, place to be.
0: Are you sitting on a cardboard box right now?
1: No, no, although a lot of the tables are made of old doors, which are it's pretty cool.
0: Jigger Shaw is with Generate Capital in San Francisco this week. So, back in New York, you, you didn't like move your place unexpectedly or anything. You're still living in the same place? No, I didn't. I'm good. I'm just Curious whether
2: Catherine's security is better or worse at 1776. I think last time we went to her building,
0: we had to have our eyeballs scanned. Yeah, it was like a biometric system. It was crazy.
1: Yeah, it's way better. I just have a little card that says 1776, and they let me right in.
0: (laughs) Our guest also comes to us from Washington. His expertise, the apocalypse beat, more or less, that is his official biography on the site, by the way. The site is Vox.com, and the person is Brad Plumer. He's a senior editor there. He largely covers energy and climate issues, although not exclusively. Uh, I think Brad is one of the best out there when it comes to explanatory energy writing and charticles and helping people understand what's going on in the energy and climate landscape. And he previously wrote for the Washington Post's Wonk blog. Brad, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great. You've written a lot recently about what happens after the Paris climate talks. What do we really need to do to decarbonize the world? There have been two reactions after Paris. Uh, On one end of the spectrum are those who say that the agreement is a sham. People like former NASA scientist James Hansen, who say we need to do way more. On the other end of the spectrum are people like Joe Rome, my former boss at Climate Progress, who penned a piece at that site this week, saying that the environmental movement has been awakened by Paris and some of the other policy developments in the US. So how do you sort of grapple with these extremes? How, do you, how should people understand these two viewpoints that are on either extreme? It's, kind, it's understandably hard to know what to think when you have such a broad range of views.
3: Yeah, so I would preface by Looking back at past times when it seemed like we were at an inflection point, if you look back at 2009, basically everyone was really optimistic uh, when Obama came to office that we'd get some big uh, climate action. Uh, Congress failed to pass the climate bill. And at that point, everyone sunk into a deep depression who follows climate policy and thought nothing would get done were doomed. As it turned out, there were a lot of things that were going on at that time that turned out to be bigger deals than anyone thought. Uh, So the wind and solar tax credits in the stimulus bill, I think, turned out to be uh, a surprisingly big deal. Uh, Maybe not for people who were following the industry closely, but for a lot of people, wind and solar really saw this big boom. Uh, The gas fracking boom in the U.S. uh, turned out to be a big deal, really... Uh, gave the Obama administration space later to do EPA regulations on power plants to further reduce emissions. Uh, So one thing looking back at that I've been sort of thinking about is that a lot of things we think are big deals often turn out not to be, and a lot of predictions just end up being flat wrong. So I would preface by saying everything that, you know, I I'm going to say probably anyone is going to say has a high likelihood of being wrong and uh, probably has a high likelihood of missing important trends. Um, but with, with that out of the way, I think there are two ways I would look at it. I think it's pretty undeniable that there's a lot of exciting progress being made in a lot of different areas related to clean energy and climate change. I mean, you look at uh, the growth of solar power and wind power. And even more than that, you look at how in the U.S. at least you're starting to see a change in electric utility models that help us harness a lot of these new exciting technologies. I think there's absolutely a lot of space to be optimistic. I think where you run into trouble is this question of, okay, where is that optimism leading us? Is that something where we can get the sort of steep reductions necessary to avoid very significant global warming, very significant temperature increases. And I think that's a place where, when I personally look at that, I get a little more pessimistic about about that. I think it's such an overwhelming challenge, uh, and there's so little margin for error, uh, and you just need really steep, far steeper reductions than anyone's really talking about. Yeah, and
0: and to put some numbers on that, just from some of the reporting that you've done, and you've summarized many of the studies that have come out around Paris, in order to reach the two degree centigrade rise by the middle of the century, we need to reduce our carbon intensity globally by about 6% a year, and we're at roughly 1%. And of course, oil, gas and coal still make up about 86% of the world's energy supply. And there are many, many other numbers that um, when you look at make you feel pretty pessimistic about where we're at. So you
3: look at I think the numbers are six or seven percent a year every year by mid century if we want to avoid more than two degrees of global warming, which is what a lot of people think we should try to do. And if you look at the historical experience of that, I think only a few places have ever done that for a short period of time. I think France, when they were massively scaling up their nuclear program uh, in the 70s and 80s, I think Sweden as well, when it was scaling up its nuclear program, and you need that not just in a few countries, but everywhere around the world, and you need to sustain that not just in electricity, but in transportation, in industry, uh, in shipping, in flight. Um, You know, you really do start to wonder where that's going to, how that's going to happen, how that's going to be possible. Both of those countries had extremely strong state-directed policies, and um, you know, there's nothing like that on the table now for the entire world in every country out there.
2: But isn't but but aren't we always talking about unprecedented, you know, work? Whether it was the you know reach of mobility around the world now, such that. 500 million people around the world have mobile phones and no electricity in their house to charge them at, or, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just the the rapid scale up of, you know, transportation globally, or, I mean, it, the rapid decline in, in infectious diseases, the, you know, ability for people to live far, far longer lives in the last four decades. It just seems like we're in the business of doing unprecedented things in this last 50 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I feel like that's the wild card. I think cell phones are a good example. Like they've just, you know, they've spread far faster than anyone would have even imagined. You look at sci fi books from the 80s, and no one imagined that we'd ever have cell phones. And now it's a commonplace thing that we just completely take for granted. I think the question is whether energy can be like that. And there are all sorts of ways in which it's different energy infrastructure has a slower turnover rate. And there's a lot of Uh, government regulation that makes it harder for change to happen. But then you look at places like what New York's doing with its utility reform. The question is whether there are places where you could see a market emerge, where you see that sort of rapid turnover.
2: But here's my thing, Brad, and I'd love to, I mean, maybe I'm taking us on a slight diversion, but, you know, like Robert Samuelson had an absolutely horrific column this last week in the Washington Post, basically saying that, we're defeatist, we can't do it, we should just give up. And I'm just trying to figure out, why do you think it is that the punditry class that matters the most in this country, whether it's George Will or Robert Samuelson or others, are just willing to say that this is impossible? I mean, these are people who are old enough to see how America has actually faced big problems and, and defeated them in their lifetime. And why are they coming forward and saying,
0: we failed to do big things and America is defeated? Before you yeah. answer that, Brad, I want to get a summarization of that article from Jigger because I did not read that piece. So, what was his argument?
2: Yeah, so 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 Bob Samuelson, you know, who's I think seventy years old and has been writing for the Post for a long time, you know, basically said, and his his first line was on climate change: curb your enthusiasm. You know, and it's basically saying what's being att- attempted, of course, is a wholesale replacement of the whole world's economies reliance on fossil fuels, and et cetera, et cetera. And so his, his basic premise is that, that renewable energy, while very successful in solar and wind, can't actually replace coal because, um, you know, this base load intermittency argument, et cetera, which, which I mean, it just, seems like, it, it, it just seems like he is quick to sort of say, we don't really have the tools, we don't really have the technologies, we don't really have the know-how necessary to beat this demon
0: um
3: i you know i would say with a lot of these columnists i sometimes wonder uh you would have to ask them what's in their heart of hearts i sometimes wonder how much of what they write is just driven by some personal dislike of environmentalists and what they see as the environmental movement because i totally agree it's the one you know you see so much optimism in so many other areas from conservatives as well they're optimistic about uh technology you know the um When people see the dramatic reduction in poverty around the world over the last few decades, that's a, it's a huge deal. And, you know, conservatives will often tout the triumph of markets to be able to do that, uh, the triumph of capitalism to be able to do that. And yet in this area, they seem to believe that this is a problem that capitalism can't overcome, that markets can't overcome. And I, I agree. I think it's a real contradiction. And I really can't explain
1: it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Brad, which is the those the tiny percentage of deniers who happen to be very loud voices in generally Republican Party in the U.S., did they have sort of an outsized impact negatively on the policies that came out of Paris? I mean, certainly they have an impact on the policies in the U.S., but for global policies, uh, do they not have a voice that is that is unwarranted?
3: It is tough to tell. I think I wrote about this a bit, uh, and a lot of people have written about this. I think one of the big things that came off Paris, the core idea that motivated it was this idea that, uh, you know, a lot of for a lot of countries, they just didn't want to submit to a binding treaty that would force them to make reductions. Uh, and that came from China. That came from India. I don't think that came from a place of climate denial. I think it came from a bunch of different factors and, and
0: and the argument that i would make is that it, it did have somewhat of an impact because the us knew that they couldn't ratify any treaty so they were pushing for the voluntary target track for the last couple of years and that helped shape shape what we ultimately got it definitely did shape it although i think
3: europe was one always pushing for a binding treaty that everyone would have to ratify and you know maybe there would be some penalties or whatnot. I don't know if the U.S. in an alternate universe ever would have gone behind that. But even if the U.S. had, you still have had the fact that a binding treaty was a really unpopular idea with China, with India, with a bunch of other countries. So if anything, I don't know if the outcome would have been significantly different there.
1: One of the things I wanted to ask Brad on this was if it looks like we could potentially leapfrog, as Jigger is saying, to, to something, you know, to some solutions that are really radically different that we can't even predict. How do we here in the U.S. lay the foundation for that? Is it like these death by a million cuts like the New York Rev, or is there something bigger that we can do?
3: At least what we can see now is that probably to get really sweeping cuts in U.S. emissions, probably at some point Congress will have to get involved. And right now, that seems like an extremely unlikely prospect. There are just no one in the Republican Party supports any sort of climate action. Um, And, you know, it's unlikely they're going to be the minority for the foreseeable future. But I think what we've seen over the last 60, 100 years of U.S. history is that big policy changes often happen in spurts. It's kind of like punctuated equilibrium, where nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then like we saw in 2009, 2010, there's this massive upheaval and a bunch of legislation gets passed all at once. What's important is for policymakers, Wongs, think tank places, to really think through what sorts of policy changes they would like to see enacted and articulate that clearly and build support for them. So when that moment does happen, where there's this big opportunity, you know, it's on the table. Uh, People reach for whatever ideas are at hand, and you want to make sure those ideas
2: are good ones. Well, I think that the framework itself is unclear to people, right? I mean, I think, like, when you think about fracking in this country, we're not anywhere close to actually being um, at at equilibrium in terms of oil imports. And we're never going to be. I mean, even EIA has made it clear that that uh, even before oil prices went down, that we were gonna peak in terms of oil production by 2020 and still not get rid of all of our um, imports. And so therefore, you know, the framework by which we're all chasing a goal doesn't exist, right? I mean, everyone just says, we want to have a price on carbon, which is fine, but that's not really a framework, right? I mean, and, I mean, don't we actually need a
0: framework that we're all going towards? Well, I yeah. also think that we need a recognition of the exciting stuff that's happening on the ground. So going back to your comment on Bob Samuelson's column, there's often a failure to recognize a lot of the interesting developments that are happening in the business. The the grid control technologies, the power electronics, the new chemistries and batteries, the things that are at just at commercial scale that are set to really transform the way we integrate renewable energy. I'm being very electricity biased right now. And clearly the challenges in transportation and uh, in heating and cooling are much greater, but there are similar trends happening in those spaces. And a lot of the nuance gets left out. So that framework is very much skewed when we have these big policy conversations about what's possible, I find.
3: Yeah, it is amazing that you see exciting things happening in tech. And there are all these advances, you know, everything from self-driving cars to things that are happening on the internet or with mobile phones. And none of that gets politicized. You don't have one party saying that Apple's new iPhone is exciting and the other party saying that it's horrible. Uh, And for some reason, we've gone into an area where a lot of the exciting new energy technology that's out there does get politicized. You know, you hear uh, Jeb Bush, I think there was another Republican as well, maybe Marco Rubio, talking about how things like solar, wind, a lot of this grid-edge technology were uh, energy sources of the past, and the energy sources of the future were oil, gas, and coal, uh, which is just a sort of bizarre comment, but shows how... What a weird space we're in, where a lot of these exciting and interesting technologies seem to be thought of differently from technological advances in every other area. So I think that's right. I think if they were seen as things that are actually interesting, exciting advances that can make everyone's lives better... Uh it would probably be a very different conversation. And it's a hard question to know how we get there politically. Right, but we settled that,
2: right? I mean, we got a long term extension of the of the of the wind and solar uh tax credits and we traded it for oil, right? I mean that was the that was the compromise. I mean, I, I think the way we got here was that like there is still no one from myself to Elon Musk to others that are really lionized in this space, right? I mean, in general, Um, all of these changes are being done through the environmental movement. So it's the lobbyists of the Sierra Club or NRDC or EDF or others that are actually leading this on the policy side, as opposed to um, some sort of lobbying group that represents um, industry. I mean, even CIA, which I think did a great job um, in getting these tax credit extensions or AWIA, I think were largely supported by um, the environmental groups, right? And, and so I, I think, you know, if we're going to like move away from the tribalism, we actually have to move away from counting on the environmentalists to actually uh, drive industrial policy.
0: Yeah, but I think that that's what they've tried to do, right? I mean, SIA and OEA were directly opposed to many of the environmental groups because mm-hmm. of this proposal to lift the oil export ban. There was some serious conflict in back rooms over how to strategize around this bill and. That break was pretty clear in this latest fight. Yeah, so in uh, this particular
2: instance, but we're here because all the renewable portfolio standards were passed by environmental groups, right? I mean, I would, I would say that 99.9% of the policy that we have in this country were done by the environmental groups and 0.1% was done by the industry.
0: But wouldn't you say that's because the businesses and the lobbying groups just weren't sophisticated enough and that you no, had- they were just cheap. And this is what they got. <laughs> they were cheap. They sh- like If you look at the SIA
2: right now, SIA, basically, their budget is no different than it was in 2008, 2009. And basically, when you think about how far solar has gotten since 2008, 2009, you know, Roan should have five times the budget that he has today. But everyone's cheap. And when, you- when you're cheap, you've got to make compromises. And what do you do? You bring in other people's budgets, and that's environmental groups.
0: I think I want to try to understand your point here, Jigger. Are you saying... That the business groups, in order to make a greater impact, need to get away from the traditional environmental groups that have yeah. historically... And robbed- they've been
2: doing it in the last year or so, which is, I think, what you were saying, but they didn't historically. And so so people like Bob Samuelson is basically against all environmentalists and environmental-type stuff, right? And so he views solar and wind as an environmental thing when it's actually a technology thing. It was something that we invented in the United States. It's something that we really brought to fruition, and the modern advances have all happened in the United States. And we should be celebrating... you know, the modern advancement of science in the US and then the technological and industrial might that the United States has brought to the table
0: here. And instead, we're, you know, arguing about tribalism. Catherine, I want to get your reaction to the relationship between the business groups and the enviros. And then I want to hear Brad's thoughts about the the political impact
1: there. Well, I mean, I just think that the renewable industry businesses have been, you know, they've had to come along as business groups. And so now they're becoming more powerful because they are real businesses. Whereas before the environmental groups were needing to create those businesses from, you know, startup technologies. And now those businesses are real. And I think they're real players now. You know, I saw the the omnibus issue is less of envirors versus solar and wind as as just that the environmental groups had boxed themselves out of the negotiation because they had come out against the oil export ban and and so then luckily we had people in the envir- in the renewable energy industries who were real businesses and who could really play and negotiate with the big guys.
0: Brad, any thoughts on the difference in influence between The business groups that are pushing clean tech and the enviros that have historically been allied with them, and now you start to see this divergence in strategy. I think it's going to be hard to break that
3: tribalism link apart that uh, Jigger was talking about. And I think one thing you do see though is, uh, and it's gotten a lot of press, you start to see in more areas conservative groups that are very pro solar and that's something that's interesting. I think right now it's still pretty small and it's scattered around the country. But, you know, over the next five years, we're going to see solar grow and expand a lot. Um, It's still largely in California, but certainly not exclusively in California. And that's, I think, when you'll start to see some interesting political changes. Uh, You know, it's interesting if you look just at Texas Wind power has become really popular there, and I think at least within Texas state politics, uh, wind is starting to break out of that partisan tribalism, that you get a lot of conservatives who really support it and no longer see it as something that environmentalists are just behind because it's gotten so popular, because it's so widespread, because you often see it in rural conservative areas. Uh, so that's something I think will be really interesting to watch over the next five years, whether we see a similar dynamic nationally.
0: Yeah, I think 80% of wind installations are in red districts. And mm-hmm. we can thank George W. Bush for Texas's first uh, wind target. Yes. So definitely a lot of conservative roots in that industry. Um, as a, a, a writer looking at all these trends, what's in, what else is interesting to you? in 2016. Are there any other stories that you're following that we haven't talked about? Uh,
3: I think one we haven't talked about much is transportation. And uh, that's one I think deserves more close attention. I mean, right now, we've basically seen fuel economy stall out over the last year because of low oil prices. Uh, Electric cars are considerably lower than their target. And it's a real and yet car makers are really going all in on this. and it's also interesting to see uh, Toyota is decide that battery electric cars aren't the future, and they're going all in on hydrogen cars, which my impression was a while, you know for the past few years that most experts had agreed that this was a dead end. and yet Toyota's not a dumb company, uh, and they're really pushing hard on this. So I feel like that's something that's going to be really interesting to see because, you know, that's just as important as what's happening in the power sector with solar and wind and other technologies. And uh, I think it's very hard to see what the trajectory is
0: going to be. Yeah, the transportation element is really interesting. And 2015 seemed to mark a turning point in terms of the readiness of autonomous technologies, electric vehicles, battery technologies, the scale of manufacturing, companies getting interested in this space. So we're going to talk about that in the next segment. Right, But there's
2: no, I mean, the reason transportation is where it is right now is because there's no real easy way to talk about it, right? I mean, like when you hear like columnists talk about like Charles Lane did a piece in the Washington Post about it, um, you know, he talks about fuel savings. Electric vehicles have nothing to do with fuel savings. Electric vehicles have to do with the reduction of complexity such that you have maintenance savings, right? I mean, the amount of maintenance costs for electric vehicles are far lower. And so, in fact, the cost per mile for electric vehicles are way cheaper now, even with oil prices down than they are for gasoline-powered vehicles. But nobody really has a way to talk about it. I think with a lot of this, uh, and we've seen
3: this with solar, it seems like word of mouth and seeing other people install solar panels on their roofs is a very po- is a very powerful way to get other people interested and i feel like electric cars currently are confined to pretty small parts of the country and i think you know that's absolutely right that there are the maintenance cost issues that no one talks about and that just seems like something that's really going to have to start spreading by word of mouth the way uber really did uh you know i i never used Uber until at least 10 different friends had talked about and talked about how easy it is. Just because people, you know, it takes a while to change and people are slow to change. And one of the most powerful ways that people do change is seeing all their friends do something. And if, you know, all your friends talk about how great electric cars are because they have lower maintenance costs, that becomes far more powerful than anything a columnist in the Washington
0: Post can write. So let me ask the first question in a different way, given what we've just discussed. Imagine yourself sitting around the dinner table. Perhaps it was uh, a Christmas dinner or a Thanksgiving dinner, and your relatives ask you, what's up with this Paris climate deal? Uh, What's up with with Obama's climate policy? What do you think about it? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? What would you tell them? How would you describe it to them? Uh, I think I would say it's a... Good start, and there's a lot more work that needs to be done. So I I think I know how Jigger would respond to that question. Yeah?
2: Yeah. This is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet. As Dustin Hoffman said in The Graduate, this is plastics.
1: (laughs) It wasn't Dustin Hoffman. It wasn't him who said it. He was told it.
0: Right. That's true. (laughs) Well, Brad Plumer told us a lot of things. He is the senior editor at Vox.com. Thank you so much for a fun conversation. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's turn to the Consumer Electronics Show now. Since the 1960s, the Consumer Electronics Show, known as CES, has been the premier event for companies unveiling the latest gadgets. In recent years, it's evolved into a quasi-auto show, though. More companies are releasing electric cars, automotive computing technologies, autonomous vehicle models, and all the other gizmos that go into the driving experience. The trend continued at this year's show. We sent our senior reporter, Julia Piper, to Las Vegas to cover auto trends. And she joins us now from CES on her cell phone. Hey, Julia, how are you?
4: Hi, I'm good. I'm I'm tired. It's This is a massive show. Yeah,
0: you've been like covering <laughs> so many cover. different announcements. Are you at the show like on the floor right now?
4: Yeah, I'm at the stands. This is sort of a lot of smart home stuff here. I had a conversation with Vivint. We're going to have some smart home coverage uh, I think later in the week or so. But the first part of the week was all about cars.
0: And that's what we want to talk about. I want to first ask you about the the big bust of the show at least in my opinion Faraday Future this is a secretive company that's made sweeping claims about changing the auto industry with EVs and car sharing and it's got this 1 billion dollar factory plan for Nevada so everyone was like really excited about what this company would unveil at CES and it turned out to be a race car uh, a lot of people including myself kind of mocked the announcement Uh, It looks like the Batmobile. People said, "If you're talking about changing the auto industry, why are you releasing such a high-end race car?" How was it received at CES?
4: Well, people are just pretty amped up about anything kind of shiny and new. It seems people were excited. There's tons of photographs and everything like that. They're packed all day yesterday. So, from a pure like optics. position, it seems like people were interested. I think folks who are following the industry wanted more they wanted something tangible. Uh, it was confusing that they came out with a race car. Um, you know, it's one thing to come out with a high-end sedan and then work your way down to a mass car, uh, but to start at a race car level, it seems a little bit far out. How are you going to build the brand recognition and the technology for something that is a for a mass consumer? Um, this could have just been maybe just a showpiece. That's sort of what they're saying. It was, we just wanted to show that we could do something. Um, so from that perspective, I guess they did pull it off in a short period of time, three months, built this showy car. But still there's a lot of questions about what they're actually going to be doing and uh, what they're going to be doing here in Nevada. they got to... As you mentioned, a big manufacturing facility. We don't really know yet what they're going to be building there.
0: And and they say they have this flexible platform where they can basically very easily scale uh, the the battery system so that they can accommodate any type of car. That's what their selling point is. And they said, well, we unveiled this race car because we don't want to tell you what we're really up to. Uh, How much stock do you put into that claim?
4: Yeah, they wanted to show that they could, could build anything on this platform. I mean, the platform concept in itself is not entirely new. Automakers build things on platforms all the time and make them reusable and put different tops on the car. So I'm still trying to figure out what their defining element is. It seems like Faraday's defining feature is going to be this cell phone ownership model where you don't actually own the car. You sort of, you have a contract with the company and you get a bunch of different cars from them. So that's basically saying that they're going to make a whole suite of cars and then as a consumer. You could pick which one you wanted on a weekend or the next week. It's
2: pretty groundbreaking, though. I mean, I think that that's actually what it's going to take for EVs to be successful. I mean, it's too bad that Better Place, you know, fell apart. But I think that, like, I mean, it's, it's basically about taking someone's car budget, right, and saying, you currently have a $500 a month car budget, and we're going to give you mobility transportation in this budget.
0: Um, and and that's a pretty awesome idea. Yeah, I mean, you've been talking about that for a while, and it is a groundbreaking idea. But when you talk like that and then unveil a race car, that's kind of embarrassing, in my opinion.
4: Yeah, I mean, I will say there's been some rumors that they didn't actually even physically build it because they don't really have a space yet. Um, There's some rumors that like a display car company kind of came up with this one. Maybe fine, this was just sort of a display car, but... Again, it's like where are their manufacturing shops going to come from? You know, they, they have a facility in uh, L.A., but I asked them if they can manufacture there. They said not yet. So it raises the question where they've been building what they have so far. But one thing I just want to add to you is a company called Local Motors is actually starting to put this into practice. They make 3D-printed cars. They just announced in the last month or two their electric vehicle. I think it's called the Swim. Uh, It's 3D printed, so obviously it's for a niche audience. The cool thing about that is that they can adopt all kinds of technology, sensors, cameras, autonomous vehicle, um, virtual reality stuff for ownership manuals. You can just play with this thing. You can literally melt the car down and make a different car, and they're doing the same thing about a cell phone ownership model, how they want to put their vehicles out there, and they've already started producing stuff. So that's kind of exciting.
2: Yeah, so I've been following these guys for five years. The the key to local motors is actually something a little bit different, which is that, um, so there is a nuanced um, regulation in the US that says you don't have to have an EPA street legal car if you build it yourself. So local motors can build 98% of the car for you, and then you build the last 2%, and then you can drive the car off the lot without meeting an EPA test.
4: What is your takeaway from that that it's not really going to be scalable because of that? or No, I you know?
2: think it's a great idea. It's a radical idea. The problem <laughs> with innovation in transportation in this country is you have to have started PayPal before you start a, you know, a vehicle company because it takes a billion dollars. Um, and Local Motors is saying, no, it doesn't take a billion dollars. Basically, if you have it your own design, you submit it to us and get all your friends to buy it from us and, and we'll just fly them down here. They turn a couple of wrenches and they meet the EPA you know, loophole.
1: And it just seems that this isn't so much about cars and what we have grown to know as the sort of the driving experience, but is instead an extension of our lifestyle, an extension of our connectivity and all the stuff and the gadgets that we have in our home are now going to be in our car at our fingertips. And it's less about driving as it is about having all of that connectivity.
4: Right. That was another major theme here at the show. And there's a like, competition really bubbling up around that between the automakers and sort of the Silicon Valley tech companies. Um, Toyota was sort of making a, a point that Google and Apple are really just – the only reason they're in the automotive industry is to your data and market to you so that when you drive by a Starbucks, Starbucks can like throw an ad at you, whereas they're painting themselves as really having – society in mind, wanting to build safety, using their sensors for that, for weather and uh, and things that are public good. So there's a whole marketing um, element there of how these companies are positioning themselves. The automakers saying that we've had huge software teams for a long time, don't just think that we're manufacturers. Um, I think that's really going to heat up as the automakers try to get more into the home and tech companies get more into cars. It's uh, becoming a bit of a Game of Thrones situation. <laughs>
0: I want to recap just some of the big announcements. There was the Chevrolet Bolt Uh, unveiled yesterday, which you covered, a 200-mile range, $30,000 price tag, considered basically the sweet spot for an electric vehicle that's accessible to the masses. Ford announced a a few weeks ago that it was investing $4.5 billion in a bunch of new EV models, and it was reported that they're partnering with Google on autonomous cars, and Ford says it's tripling the number of autonomous cars it's testing out in the field and it says it's interested in ride-sharing services. Toyota at CES said it would invest about a billion dollars in artificial intelligence and build up a 200-person team to work on autonomous driving. Uh, uh, NVIDIA Corporation announced this computer for cars with a computing power of over 150 MacBook Pro laptops that will be used for autonomous driving um, and Decision making, a lot of cool stuff here. So, uh, how psyched up are people about cars at this show? Like, do you think that they're going to start dominating the the tech landscape like they seem to be? It seems to be a pretty monumental moment for automobiles.
4: Yeah, it is. I think there's a stat that there's 25% more of the convention floor space has been dedicated to cars than just even last year. And it's sort of taken some of the excitement out um, from around the uh, Detroit Auto Show, which is coming up next week so definitely there's excitement i think people who are following this really closely there some you know sideline conversations about okay what's we're, what's really going to happen with autonomous vehicles now we know we can do it it's that pivotal you know last step from a lot of autonomy to full autonomy that is going to take a long time to really figure out so i think there's been some talk of pushing back dates of when full autonomy is going to happen maybe we'll see what happens next year if people actually hit another milestone
0: Julia Piper is our senior reporter at GTM. She is in Las Vegas for CES, reporting on smart home trends and automobiles. You can catch her reporting, which we will uh, link to, on the podcast page. Julia, thanks for your time.
4: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Let's finish up here and talk about Nevada. 2015 brought stunning growth to the Nevada rooftop solar industry, tenfold over 2014. But in December, regulators passed new rules that will undoubtedly bring that growth to a grinding halt. Just before Christmas, the Public Utilities Commission there unanimously agreed to slash net metering to the wholesale rate over the next four years, while doubling monthly service charges. The biggest blow here isn't necessarily the change, it's that these rules apply to all solar customers now even those who've signed a contract or purchased a system under old rules. SolarCity and Sunrun have ceased operations in the state, and um, hundreds and hundreds of jobs have been cut. The Alliance for Solar Choice is suing the governor. Vivint Solar says it wants out of the state. Solar customers are left wondering what the heck is going to happen to their investments. Catherine, this has been ongoing in Nevada. Like They've dealt with the net metering cap in 2015. The PUC said it was going to issue a ruling on net metering but i don't think a lot of people expected this to apply to everyone for there to be no grandfathering of existing solar customers and typically these changes apply to new solar owners like not the ones who bought systems under the old rate how worried do you think the solar industry should be both for Nevada and possibly in other states if this does set a precedent?
1: Well, I talked to someone who was formerly at the commission in another southwest state and who had written a lot of the rules on net metering there. And this person said that there are kind of two major themes that come out of this. One is that the traditional style of net metering may not be as solid as everybody thought. And that may not be all bad. I mean, there are a lot of new other distributed energy resources out there that have to be counted, like storage and demand response and efficiency, and all of these participate on the demand side. And so having some kind of a value of solar mixed with different price signals uh, for for peaking and for dispatchability, you know, I think there's an evolution there. The other thing that he said was a big theme is that the tactics that some of these solar companies used were really really... really alienating and caused a pretty bad feeling. Um, They alienated the governor and the commissioners in Nevada. In another state, the only solar friendly commissioner was booted out. And a lot of this is because these these attacks have been really, really personally focused. And so there were kind of two things going on. And you hate to have tactics of some kind of ruin the market for others. I don't know. Jigger. what do you think about that?
2: Well, I think that's why Solar City left Task. I mean, I do think that, you know, Sunrun for a very long time has had this sort of uh, "take no prisoners" type attitude, and you saw this in Hawaii where the commissioners, you know, specifically called out Task and said that they were not helpful um, and were not, you know, good partners. Um, and so, I do think that you know Task needs to re look at its attitude problem and figure out whether there's a way to make its argument with a much softer glove um, than it has been. But I think separately, your point around net metering is true. I mean, look, I've said for a long time that net metering was rough justice. Um, I certainly don't think we should get rid of it until we figure out what to replace it with, which is why I've been pushing the value of solar tariffs so much. But I do think that the solar industry has done a horrible job at getting the academic literature necessary to figure out what its position is, right? I mean, if the solar industry wants to move to a value of solar tariff or of the utilities owning the inverters and getting the most benefit out of it, it really needs a set of studies um, in place that it can use within these dockets. And I don't think yeah. that they're very robust.
1: Yeah. And the solar industry has to then present those policy ideas because this is going to end up being some kind of a compromise. Um, and you know the utility business model is shifting, the solar industry is growing, they're going to have to come up with something that works for everybody. And so the solar industry should come up with those ideas.
0: So let's say that net metering was phased down over four or five years down to the wholesale rate or near the wholesale rate. My guess is that a lot of these companies over a four or five year time with a phase down could accommodate that change. But when you apply that to existing customers that is so dangerous people who oh. in good faith signed a contract for 20 years or who bought a system thinking that they were under a certain rate structure and now they are screwed and if i'm a customer i'm really pissed off if i'm solar city i'm very very worried about default rates and if i'm an investor in solar city looking at the long term i'm a little bit nervous about this precedent as well
2: yeah no this is right look this is uh this was a Battle of the Titans right between Warren Buffett and Elon Musk right. I and mean, Warren Buffett basically hates net metering and hates DG and he's buying up all the utility companies around California um, because he sees a huge uh, money making opportunity when California decides to expand the California ISO to a larger balancing pool uh, that includes the neighboring states the question is, is whether Warren Buffett is going to create an uh, anti net metering policy across you know, all of the bordering states from
0: California. And he certainly won this round. I don't think we can understate how important this story is. Firstly, because of the precedent it sets when you don't grandfather people in to the rule changes. That's very dangerous. You know, I think we can all grapple with new rules and The changes to rules over time, but when people have signed contracts and paid money with the expectation that they were under a certain rate structure, that's very dangerous. Secondly, Nevada is a huge market for rooftop solar. I talked to one of our analysts, um, our market analyst Corey Honeyman at GTM Research, and I asked him for some stats on Nevada. Um, The growth there has been ridiculous. So quarterly installation volumes in the residential market there have increased tenfold over a year. So demand jumped from like hundreds of kilowatts in 2014 to 40 megawatts in the third quarter of 2015. Uh, Nevada jumped from the 28th largest residential state market in 2013 to 14th in 2014 to number two in 2015 based on Q3 data. So no state has grown in the rankings as quickly as Nevada did. And, um, SolarCity represents 61% of Nevada installations. So they are the company that has hit the worst.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not,
0: I'm not worried about Solar City as much as I agree that precedent's awful. But I
2: just think that we have to learn the lessons from this, right? Which is that Task went in and basically said, no compromise, no nothing. And if you actually cross us, we're going to get personal, right? I mean, when you talked about phasing down the wholesale rate and all the other things, None of that stuff was on the table. I mean, the solar industry wasn't even able to have a conversation about it. They basically said it's net metering, or we're you know gonna s- sit, sick the mob on your house, and and like that's that's a big problem. The solar industry absolutely has to be a little bit more um, understanding of when they can use that tactic and when they can't. And you know, I, I just think that the solar industry is in this interesting situation, like it's, we talked about before, where we're now the incumbent we're, we are the stronger party. And as the stronger party, you actually have to go in with ideas. You have to actually play the game. You can't just, you know, yell like a crying three year old.
1: No, but I think it is a wake up call as Jigger said. And I think we need to come up with some more solutions and the solar industry has to be ready with those.
0: Minutes before we started recording this podcast, Sunrun said it was pulling out of the state, taking hundreds of jobs with it. Solar City said this week that it was eliminating 550 jobs. I think Vivint has threatened to do the same if they haven't pulled out already. Um, do these tactics work after the fact? No. Uh,
2: Nevada doesn't give a rat's ass. Nevada Nevada Energy has, for a long time been very clear about how much they hate DG. And Nevada Energy controls that state with an iron fist. I mean, even if you're a casino that wants to build, you know, CHP plants or whatever, Nevada Energy will screw you from doing that kind of DG as well. So this is not going to change Nevada's policy.
0: There still could be changes, folks. We'll keep you updated. There's a hearing today on this, and I believe a final decision will be made January 13th. A lot of people in the solar industry and customers are responding. So there, there could be changes here. That's the end of the show. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know, and jigger you're up first this week
2: thanks so um so I don't know how many of you have read this uh great uh book, uh, Let It Shine: the Six Thousand Year Story of Solar Energy, but it's written by a great guy John Perlin um and I was reading it and and a blog post that he put up um and he basically. Uh, talks about Jimmy Carter and how Jimmy Carter actually had a chance to really scale up the solar industry and chose not to. That you know this this lionization of Jimmy Carter was actually misplaced. That um, that his staff came to him, um, you know, because DoD had gigawatts worth of uh, diesel generators. And they really wanted to replace those in remote areas with solar because they don't have a thermal signature. And back then people were using a lot of thermal signatures to find bad guys. And, um, and Jimmy Carter killed the deal. Um, when, you know, when DOD was willing to step up and buy, you know, gigawatts of solar at that, you know, that, that time. And, um, uh, it was interesting. Um, and so, you know, for those of you who've, you know, lionized Jimmy Carter, like I have, um, you should, you know, check out John Perlin's
0: uh, piece in Clean Technica. Catherine, tell us something we don't know.
1: Yeah, speaking of, uh, you know, presidents, we're about to enter into a presidential election year. And I know we had a big 2015 closeout, a banner year. Um, But does that mean nothing will get done? I don't think so. I think 2016, I think most people, you know, the the word on the street is ah, nothing gets done during election year. However, I've heard Senate Energy might take their bill to the floor um, on the 19th of January that early that um, EPA is still doing their state implementation plans are due this summer um, that Paul Ryan is going to start talking about tax reform and that at least we have to get in a defensive posture, if not an offensive posture. And then, um, there's a lame duck. So after the elections, there's this period of time when no one really has an ax to grind. And I think there's some things we could get done. So I am preparing for another policy year, uh, whether or not there's a lot of silliness around the election.
0: Wait, so the ITC and the PTC were passed and you don't just sit back with your hands behind your head and put your feet up on your desk?
1: That's what I did for the last two weeks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Looks like there's
2: going to be a lot of activity over at 1776.
0: (laughs) So one of our colleagues sent me an email recently with language from the American Legislative Exchange Council showing that they were drafting opposition language, draft bills, um, opposing the rate basing of electric vehicle charging. And their argument basically is ninety percent of tax credits for EVs go to the wealthiest twenty percent of Americans, which actually is a reputable figure, by the way, which comes from um, a report from the University of California, Berkeley. You know, a lot of people, including those supportive of EVs, I think even you, Jigger, have opposed rate basing charging for a variety of reasons. But now Alec is jumping on this. And I haven't really been able to tell if this language has made its way into any official venues, any regulatory or legislative venues. As a reminder, Alec is a shadow business group, a conservative business group that crafts bills and then works with lawmakers. They craft bills based on business interests and then work with lawmakers to get those bills passed. And many of these pieces of legislation tend to look identical across states. So ALEC has been uh, vociferously opposed to any climate action. They have fought against RPS requirements in states. They've lost a lot of ground, though. In 2015, Shell left the organization because it opposed climate action. Uh, Most recently, American Electric Power left because of the group's opposition to the Clean Power Plan. Google left in 2014. And Eric Schmidt said Alec was literally lying about climate change. So people used to take Alec much more seriously than they do now. But notable that they're focusing on EVs now. Well, we try not to take ourselves too seriously, But if you're serious enough, you can find all our back episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You can comment on our current show and follow some links to things we discussed in this episode. You can also send us any comments, questions, show ideas to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We'll send those around and consider your feedback. Catherine, happy new year. Good to talk to you. Glad you're moved into your new digs. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.
1: Thanks. You too.
0: Jigger safe travels in San Francisco there. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreentechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week.